Good morning, lovely people, uh, and good morning to you if you are watching us online. I said this in the first gathering, and I'll say it in the second one because a few have already asked, what is written on your top, John? Well, it says, pastor, only because full-time multitasking ninja is not a ministry title. That's what it says. It's been in the, uh, in the cupboard for a while, but in the last couple of days, it's got a bit colder, hasn't it? Well, we are talking this morning uh, about money. And uh, we have an annual rhythm here at Coastline, and it may change uh, uh, in the coming weeks, months, and years. Um, but we have an annual rhythm where we unapologetically come to this point and we talk about money. And listen, it, don't zone out. Uh, please don't switch off. Like, stay with me. The more that I study the Bible, and I've been studying it for nearly 20 years, I can't get around the topic of money. It, it seems to be absolutely fundamental to our apprenticeship to Jesus. So this morning I want to talk about how money and our stewardship of money has a direct result on our spiritual formation. As I've prayed uh, in my prep for this message, I just had this real sense uh, from God, this, this kind of longing for heaven to open and the full resources of heaven to fall on this church, that the favor of God to fall on you, the resource of God to fall on you, not so much for you, but so that we can release it into the world around us. If this is your first time attending Coastline, or maybe you're joining us online and you're like, out of all the weeks that I could have come here, they're now talking about money, um, I don't apologize. Just, just hang in there and hear what I have to say, because this book has a lot to say about money. In fact, welcome team, if you could lock the doors now, that would be great. <laughs> only joking, only joking. Okay. Let me start by highlighting to you some stats that will hopefully help us understand why it's so important to talk about money. Did you know that the second most common theme in the Bible next to salvation uh, is the theme of money? One sixth of the verses in the Gospels deal with money. In fact, if you do a word search in the Bible, uh, if you do the word, a word search on the word believe, the word believe comes up 272 times. I mean, to believe is pretty important, right? If you do a word search in the Bible of the word pray, the word pray comes up 371 times. And to, to pray is very important, right? How about love? Love's a pretty important word. If we do a search in the Bible of the word love, it comes up 714 times. And then the word give. If we do a study of the word give from the Bible, it appears 2,111 times. And if you add the words related to money, the word tithe and offering, wealth, gold, rich and poor, they come up a total of 4,279 times. That's 4,279 times there is a reference to money and stewardship that comes up in the word of God. So God clearly wants to highlight this to us as an extremely important topic. And my aim for our time together this morning is to try and build on our culture of extravagant generosity, for us to grow in our giving for the glory of God. And let me just say this, this message is not about generating funds. This message 
is simple discipleship to Jesus. One in every three parables Jesus teaches has something to do with money or possessions or finances or what we have. And of course, God's Word talks a lot about money, not because God needs our money, but because it's an indicator of so much other stuff in our lives. Today we're going to be looking at Luke 16, so if you have a Bible, do open it up, or it's going to come up on the screen. But just before we get into this parable, let me say right off the bat that this comes across a bit confusing, because Jesus is sharing this parable with his disciples, where he gives the example of a crook who rips off his employer and then is commended by that same Boss, it's a, bit, uh, it's a bit confusing at first glance. It kind of seems like Jesus is commending dishonest behavior, but he's not. My genuine hope as we look into this parable this morning is it will open our eyes afresh on money, finances, and generosity, and of course, grow us as disciples of Jesus. So, Luke 16, starting in verse 1. Jesus told his disciples... There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and he asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So there's this manager who was a steward of this master's estate. It was very common in ancient Israel, as it is today, that wealthy landowners would appoint managers to look after their estates, somebody to be their kind of their business manager, somebody to be a steward, like a fund manager, if you like. So as we read this, it says this manager has, has squandered the possessions of the master, this, this rich man. He's mismanaged the master's property somehow. And it seems that this manager has been given some kind of extension, some kind of time before his employment fully comes to an end. It's kind of like he's been given a notice period. And then from verse 3, it says, The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. This manager knows that when his job ends, he's not likely to get another job easily. He's in trouble. So he has this idea. And this is where it starts to get a little bit confusing. From verse 4, he says this. He says, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will, will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. So what this manager does is, is, is desperate But it's savvy. He takes the master's debts and then he starts giving them discounts. Think about it. He's giving them discounts that may kind of enable him to create friendships that he didn't have before. Of course, these debtors were thrilled that their their kind of debts were being slashed. And this manager is now gaining favor with them. Conveniently, just before he's about to be looking for a new job. I mean, maybe he thinks 
will open up my job options. Now, this might seem super unethical, but you get the picture of what uh, the story is saying so far, because it gets even more confusing as we read on from verse 8. It says this, it says, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. So was this master praising him because he'd ripped him off? Well, we, we don't think so. We're not actually sure what happened. But the good news is that we don't fully need to get this to understand the point that Jesus is making. Let me give you a few theories that might be true. If we look at the Old Testament, to charge excessive interest on a debt was seen as wrong by God. And actually to charge any interest on a debt uh, when somebody was hurting or in crisis was also wrong by God. So maybe in this context, this manager was originally charging extortionate interest on these debts. And maybe he was doing that so that he could take a little bit off the top for himself. So then when he knocked down this interest, maybe he's making things right with these people. The question is, but why does the master commend him? Well, maybe the master is saying, well, all these people actually despised me because of your crookedness. They actually thought that I was ripping them off, but now they know the truth. And of course, this had won some favor between the master and these debtors. Or maybe the master was a crook as well. It kind of takes one to know one. We don't actually know for sure. But having said all that, I believe that Jesus wants to remind us through this text of three roles that we all play when it comes to money. The first role that we play that Jesus wants us to understand is that we are managers of the master's money. We're managers. Verse 8, it says, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than they are the people of light. Right there, Jesus gives an example of how people in the world look out for each other in a way that God's people sometimes neglect. Jesus saying this manager is wiser than the disciples when it comes to them using their wealth for the extension of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, wise up. This manager has now fully comprehended that this money wasn't his. And so he begins to, begins to, to manage it wisely. He's saying we're all managers of someone else's money. We're not the owner. We're managers God is the owner and we're the managers. See, when we manage someone else's money, can we do whatever we want with it? Can we? No, we can't, can we? Some of us here, or maybe some of you watching online, you've got investments or you've got, or you've got pension funds. Imagine if the person who looks after your investments and your pensions, they come to you at year end and they say to you, look, thanks so much. This year we went out and spent all of your money and then they show you loads of pictures of them like wearing designer clothes and all the things that they had spent your money on. Would that be okay? No, it wouldn't. In fact, that person who mismanaged your money may go to prison, right? 
When it's someone else's money, we don't get to do whatever we want. And Jesus is saying, <clears throat> this was, wasn't his money, it was the master's money. Jesus is saying to the disciples, stop acting like this is your money. It's not. Now for some of you hearing that and hearing me say that, you actually feel pretty offended. You say, John, it's my money. I've worked hard for this money. I paid for my university. I've bought my house. I've worked my way up the corporate ladder. I put in the hours. I earned it. It's mine. And Jesus would say, no, you didn't make money. You're managing what was entrusted to you. You say, well, I worked really hard. My question to you is, how did you work hard? You worked hard because of the life and the health and the talents and the opportunity and the resources that God provided you. It's, it's God's money, and that's what Jesus is saying. In 1 Chronicles 29, uh, King David prays this incredible prayer. And just a little side note, at this point when David prays this prayer, he is profoundly wealthy. He's probably a billionaire many times over. In 1 Chronicles 29 from verse 11, David prays this. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. David makes it pretty clear here, doesn't he? Who owns everything? Incidentally, just further down in 1 Chronicles 29, David then gives the largest recorded offering in history. So in light of the God who owns everything, including our money, I always feel super challenged when I read Malachi 3.8, where God is calling out the Israelites for their kind of casual worship, their kind of lukewarmness. They're not passionate. They're kind of half-hearted in coming to God. And Malachi 3.8 says this, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings you have withheld. Look, the point here can be applied to our lives if we are a manager and not the owner. And we, and we don't kind of bring back a portion to the owner. We're not being stingy. We're robbing the owner. And that's the point that God makes here in Malachi, and that's the point that Jesus is making in Luke 16. In other words, God calls us to be generous givers because everything we've ever received is God's in the first place. Side note here about tithing. Some of you may be new to faith. Uh, um, some of you are saying, well, I don't even know what a tithe is. A tithe simply means to give a tenth of your income back to God. Now, people from time to time do ask the question, is tithing a New Testament requirement? Here's the bottom line. Any obligation to give a tenth of a proportion of your income 
seems to have gone away after the law was satisfied on the cross. In fact, the Apostle Paul says we're not supposed to give reluctantly or out of compulsion, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. So the law of the tithe seems to have gone. For some of you are like, did you just hear a pastor say that the tithe has gone away at the cross? However, in light of our roles as managers, it's really the wrong question in the first place. And that's what Jesus is showing us here. Because the question is the tithe, Old Testament or New Testament. It reveals a misunderstanding of God's ownership. I would argue the principle of the tithe is vitally important because no matter how we read these verses, the idea that all we have is God's and this kind of biblical principle is as our income grows, so our giving should grow, it's paramount. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Some versions of the Bible say, in keeping with how you are prospering, save it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. In keeping with our income and how we are prospering, it's this idea of proportion. And so tithing could be seen, if you like, as the armbands of giving, the kind of the baseline, the the starting point. It's a good biblical proportion that we can use as we grow in our giving back to God and our generosity of this extravagantly generous God who has blessed us with everything. Think about it. If you caught me after today's gathering and you came up to me and you said, John, What you don't know about me is I'm a multi-billionaire. I tell you, it's very nice to meet you. Thanks for visiting Coastline today. It's great to see you here. And what if you then said to me, John, look, could you do me a favor? Would you manage my money over the next year? I'd say, well, sounds like like a big job. Does that sound like a big job? It's It's a lot of money. Well, what are the terms? And you then said to me, well, just keep whatever you make on my money. But what, what if you just gave a portion back? How about 10%? I would say, great, deal. (laughs) And God is saying, it's all mine. You manage my money, and I'm asking you to give back a proportion as an acknowledgement that all you have is mine. We're stewards, we're, we're managers, and this is the lens that Jesus wants us to look through as we think about money. The second role that Jesus wants us to understand when it comes to money, is we're not just managers, but we're also investors. We're eternal reward investors. Jesus' application gets very interesting uh, as we move on in verse 9. It says this, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus makes a direct application here. Remember, this this steward, this manager in this story, he's on borrowed time. The manager says, with the little time that I have left, I want to give these discounts so that I can have a return later. And Jesus is saying, from an eternal standpoint, we can all do the same. We can invest our money with the eyes of investors into something that will be eternal. When it comes to our money over the years, I've heard Christians say, well, you can't take it with you. 
technically, you can. We can't take our house, we can't take our car, we can't take our cash, but we can invest our money now in such a way that it ends up in eternity reaping eternal rewards. We can invest now for all of eternity. Isn't that incredible? Matthew 6, 19 to 21, Jesus says this. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Look, I don't know about you, but I want to invest my money in fruitful ministry that reaps an eternal reward. I want to encourage you, church, to invest in God's bride. You can invest in many amazing things, but there's only one thing that Jesus is coming back for, and that's his church. And of course, I'm biased for coastline. But I actually believe I'm going to be in heaven one day, walking around and meeting people that have met Jesus through this church because of my investment. When I'm long gone from this earth, we should all be making eternal investments with God's money, with a return in mind. And Jesus is asking us here to think about the eternal returns on our investment. And actually, I was thinking about this. If you already give to the work of Coastline, then you get glimpses of eternal rewards all the times as we share stories. Every salvation, every baptism, every person cared for, every child or young person taught, every course that we run, every person discipled, every gathering that happens, every life that is touched by the love of God, we get to see an immediate return on our collected investment. And all investments made at Coastline are aiming for an eternal reward. So what Jesus is showing us through this uh, this parable is first we're all managers, second we're all investors, and third, Jesus wants us to know that in light of our finances, we're all students learning from a stunningly generous God. We're students. That every pound that I have, every pound that I spend, every monetary decision that I make is a learning opportunity. Let's just look at these last few verses from verse 10. It says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is, who is dishonest with much... Sorry. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy in someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I mean, just in those three verses, he's giving us loads of lessons. But I want us to notice a phrase towards the end of verse 11. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? 
In other words, Jesus is saying that this has far more applications than just our money. It's far more important than just our cash. He's saying our money will teach us hard lessons over and over again about our hearts. Our money and our finances and how we look at them reveal something of this. Let's be honest with one another. Even if you're here today and you don't know God, or maybe you're tuning in online at a later date, so you're checking Coastline out, and you're saying, well, I'm not really on board with you, John, in terms of what you're saying about biblical stewardship, giving, and generosity. Okay, that's fine. But can we at least agree this is true? If we looked at any one of our bank accounts right now, it's going to reveal something about our passions, our priorities, and our hearts The things that keep us up at night, they're going to show up there because money is a teacher. And Jesus is saying money is a great teacher because it's a tangible example of what's happening in our hearts. It reveals so much. Jesus says money teaches us about our priorities. No one can serve two masters. He says it's not about the amount that we have. And also, it's a myth to think that if we're spiritual, then we're going to be poor. It's not true. There are loads of wealthy people in the scriptures that God uses who were faithful stewards of their money. These verses that we just read will simply reveal what we do with what we have. If we have a small amount, then what we'll do with a small amount and reveal what we would do with a lot. That's what Jesus is saying. And let me just say this, giving and generosity has nothing to do with the actual number in our bank accounts. There are extremely wealthy Christians who are stingy, and there are extremely wealthy Christians who are outrageously generous. There are also Christians with modest means who are extraordinarily generous, and there are Christians with modest means who are stingy. I've heard people say over the years, well, look, I don't have a lot, but if I ever do, then I'll give to the work of God. And Jesus says, no, you won't. I've heard people say, oh, when I get to that certain income, when I get there, then I'll give to the work of God. And Jesus says, no, you won't. Don't get upset with me. It's what Jesus says here. He's saying our money and what we do with our money teaches us who we trust. Our money, our offering, our giving, our generosity is an opportunity for us to grow in our faith and our trust of our extravagantly generous God. It's kind of a tool that we have to worship him. Jesus is saying there's so much that we can learn about every area of our life by simply looking at our faithfulness in giving and how we handle our finances. If Johnny and the band want to come up. In closing, my challenge to us today, if giving sacrificially to God is a new thing to you, what if you began to think about it differently? If you started to think about it in light of being a manager, of of being a steward of somebody else's money, recognizing that all that we have is God's and he's entrusted this to us, uh, for us to get the opportunity to, to give back as an expression of gratitude and love? What if you thought about giving your finances as an investor, saying to God, Look, I want to be faithful in investing for greater eternal rewards? 
I want everybody who's part of this church to invest in Coastline, to see a greater measure of the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, to see people in heaven as a result of our investment now. What if we began to think about our finances as a student What if we pray to God and say, God, would you show us what can we learn by looking at our money and what we do with it? Lord, teach us about my life through studying what I do with the money that you've entrusted to me. This parable is is so important for us to ponder. And this whole parable is ultimately about the gospel, The gospel, the good news, the fact that we owe a sin debt to God that is far greater than anything we can pay. We're hopeless in our sin, but Jesus has given everything. The very reason this church exists and why we're gathering here this morning is because we have a giving God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Wouldn't it be incredible if we all, 100% of the coastline community, gave financially, gave of our resources, and we saw this in a different light, that we're managers, that we're investors, that we're students. Church, it's an absolute honor and a privilege that we get to give back to God out of all that he has given to us. I want to encourage you to consider giving generously and faithfully to the work of this church. I want us to get to a place where we change our thinking from how much of my money should I keep to how much of God's money should I give. I mean, 10% is a good biblical starting point, but maybe you could give 11. Maybe you could give 12. I met people this week at a conference at the beginning of, uh, uh, of last week where they reverse tithe, they give away 90% of what they earn and they keep 10%. They've been faithful stewards. I I heard one pastor talk about how his church, over and above their regular giving, give away 10 and a half million pounds every year. They plant a thousand churches in India every year. Do you want to be part of a church that has the ability to do that? Do you? I do. I want the resources that God is giving us to literally come into our hands and go out of our hands. This is not about building some kind of empire. It's about building the kingdom of God on earth. And it's going to take every one of us to say, I'm in. I want to partake in this. I want to see uh, the kingdom come. I want to be uh, making eternal reward investments. So what we're going to do, church, is we're going to respond And I would love it if every single person who is in this room and every person that is watching online would respond. On your uh, seats, there are these pledge forms. We put them out every year. And they're a pledge. Uh, they're, They're an opportunity for you to say, this is what I'm going to do. And uh, on this pledge form, uh, it says, I would like to give to Coastline. And then there's a box to say how much uh, you would like to give. There's also a QR code, and I think there's a QR code that are going to come up on the screen. Um, This simply means you just put in your card details, and then you can say how regular you would like to give through that. 
But let me just say, the best way that you can give to the work of Coastline is to set up a standing order. The standing order details are at the bottom here, but you'd have to do that through your bank or your banking app, however you um, bank today. There's a second box here that says, I currently give to Coastline, but I would like to increase my giving. The third one is that I would like to give a one-off gift uh, to Coastline. I don't know, maybe you've just had an inheritance or, uh, I don't know, some investments, a return on investments, whatever. And then the last one here, it says, I'm currently unable to give to Coastline because I'm in financial difficulties. Look, if that is you, we want to help you. We have helped loads of people get out of debt through our CAP money course. And honestly, if that is you, don't be ashamed, okay? Like, we want to help you. Would you... Tick that box, but also please make sure you fill out the details um, at the bottom and someone will be in contact with you. Also, just to say that on every single chair is this giving envelope, uh, and I think it might come up on screen. Um, If you're a taxpayer, would you please fill out this top part and this part here because we get 25% back from the taxman, and it's it's important because, honestly, it goes to extend the kingdom of God. Thank you, taxman, for giving back to us what's God's anyway, and we're going to go and do that to extend the kingdom of God. So let's just take one moment. Let's not talk. This is, a, this is a holy moment, a significant moment. Everybody in the room, would you please pick up this form and would you fill it out? And when you're ready, just fold it in half like this and literally just in like a minute's time, maybe if you need to speak to your spouse, speak to your spouse, that's fine. We're all going to respond and come and put our collective offering into this basket. I just spend a moment before the Lord now to consider how you would like to respond.